Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. On the show with us today, Andrew Campbell. Andrew, great to have you on the show. How's it going? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Before we get into the interview, here's a little bit about Andrew. Andrew started out his real estate career as a passive investor. He then transitioned into active investing and management of a personal portfolio that grew to 76 units across Austin and San Antonio. Today, his company, Wildhorn Capital, controls over $100 million, over 1,100 units in Texas. So I think we have all the listeners' attentions right now. So with that being said, Andrew, could you please uh, tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Yeah, sure. Um, appreciate the, the intro. Um, so I live in Austin, Texas, where I was born and raised. Um, and you know, kind of like you mentioned, kind of busy managing and uh, a portfolio of about 1,100 units um, that are kind of spread out between Austin and San Antonio and you know, always actively looking for uh, the next deal in our target cities of Austin, San Antonio, and Houston. Perfect. Great. Thanks for the intro. So based on your bio, you started investing passively in 2009. Can you tell us about the first property you invested in passively and how it performed? Sure. Um, the very first property we bought, and I guess about, I rewind a little bit before that, you know, kind of the, the reason I even was investing in real estate. Um, I grew up in Austin. I moved back here in 2007. Um, my dad had a, a big stroke, so I kind of moved home to take care of him. And, um, you know, in the process was 27, 28 at the time, kind of, you know, really took six months off basically to help him rehab and had a lot of time to sort of think through, you know, life and what I wanted to get out of it. And at the time didn't have a job, you know, had to quit my job. So I'm looking for passive income and started doing a lot of, of reading about, you know, different types of real estate and, and ways you could really, the goal was kind of get more control of my time. And um, so kind of looked at a couple of flips, funded some flips, we did some infill development and we bought a duplex was the first, uh, you know, deal we bought. Um, and, you know, I think through the, through that process sort of figured out that I liked the rental game, you know, I liked the managing the property. I liked kind of, you know, talking to people and, uh, managing the residents and fixing it up some, and obviously you see the, the cash flow happening. And then we also just, you know, stupid dumb luck was buying in Austin and Texas in, you know, 2010, 11, uh, which, you know, couldn't have been a better time to be buying. So stuff was appreciating, like doubling overnight. Mm -hmm. It felt like, uh, so performance wise, everything was great. You know, we, we were, we were cash flowing and we we're cash flow positive, but also, you know, the appreciation was just going through the roof. Um, but that kind of got us launched down the path where we were kept buying, you know, save up money from our job to buy more. You know, obviously did it, we're able to do some cash out refinances to generate some more capital to just keep, you know, keep building the portfolio and pretty quickly realized versus, you know, a passive flip or, you know, kind of funding somebody's development project. Uh, I really enjoyed kind of the hands-on piece of, of the rentals and you kind of had the, the multiple ways of getting paid um, and kind of the tax advantages. So we 
you know, kind of focused on that and, and then, you know, started scaling that up and ultimately made the decision to go raise some money. Awesome. So it, it sounds like you took multiple levels with development and then um, flipping houses. How did you kind of finally uh, settle on apartments throughout all those different asset classes? And, and, you know, with the shiny object syndrome, you can go any which way, right? There's always the next best deal. How'd you kind of land on apartments? Um, I think it was, you know, after we kind of had gravitated towards doing those, you know, fourplex type deals, it, it was the next logical step. Um, you know, and again, I think for me, I liked managing the the, the project and the process out. We were doing our own property management. You know, I enjoyed kind of talking to the residents and obviously I liked the monthly cash flow um, and I liked seeing that come through and then the, the tax advantages. So I think we migrated a little bit more away from, you know, some of the other, the, the funding flips and things like that, because, Number one, I wasn't as involved and hands-on in it. And I think that was the biggest thing. I liked, you know, being active in the space and was looking for that that kind of outlet and, and business to go grow into. Uh, but also, I think just, the, you know, the returns, it made a lot of sense. And I think, you know, as we had built out our, our portfolio, we saw, you know, we had some single family, we had some duplexes, fourplexes, a, a small little 10 unit and, and saw that the bigger you had, the better that it performed, you know, our duplexes outperformed our single families is the, the fourplexes beat the duplexes. It just, you know, it makes, it makes logical sense as you start reading about thinking about it, the, the bigger the deal, the more efficiently they operate. Um, and so that's kind of how we migrated into the larger communities. Perfect. So switching gears a little bit, since our show's focus on passive investors and educating them, when it comes to a deal sponsor, is it okay for a passive investor to ask for a background check and references of their deal sponsor or of a sponsor that they're looking to invest in? A hundred percent. I mean, you know, and I think I always talk, there, there's no rules, you know, to this space, right? There, one of the things I like about the business, there's no, you know, we can structure a deal however we want from an operator side, but I also think as a passive investor, you know, you don't have a gun to your head, choose to invest or not. And if, if, if you want to request a background check and somebody doesn't provide it, don't invest. You know, we, we provide references all the time and say, Hey, can you send me names of, you know, three investors that have partnered with you across multiple deals? And you know, we're happy to do that. And I think um, you obviously need to be very comfortable with the sponsor that, that you're looking at and talking to. Uh, and you need to do as much due diligence as necessary for you to be comfortable. And if, if you're not comfortable, don't invest. Your company focuses on five phase, uh, five phase pro, uh, approach. Would you mind going over each of those phases and kind of uh, talking about your process for each? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of simple. You know, for us, we are a value add uh, group. So we're always looking for deals that have the opportunity for us to go, you know, force appreciation, improve the property. And so it starts with, you know, first is acquisition. So obviously you got to identify and find the opportunity and buy it and partner with the investors and spin up the, the legal entity. But that's just the acquisition phase. Uh, then you've got kind of the repositioning, you know, rebranding phase. And that's for us, typically the first 12 to 18 months. Um, but that's when we're coming in and you know, executing the, the upgrade, you know, are we rebranding and putting in a new signage? Are we painting the exterior, you know, whatever the business plan is, but that, that kind of takes place over that first you know, 12 to 18 months. Um, you know, then at that point you're, you're operating the deal, you know, and you're kind of looking for the, the opportune time to execute a refinance, which is one of the phases we talk, we talk about. Um, as you've improved the property, if there's the the ability uh, and the opportunity to go execute a, a refinance, we will. Um, but then you you know if if it doesn't make sense, we won't do it either. You know it's one of the things that we never are underwriting to. And I think you know for a passive investor, as you're evaluating deals, something you really want to ask that question about is you see 
particularly right now, you know, I think in this in, in the cycle, you're seeing, you know, a return of a 20% IRR, 18% IRR. Um, is there a refinance built into that assumption? You know, it, are they going to be forced to execute and return capital early in order to beat that? Um, we don't ever forecast that. We don't ever include that in our projections, but it's it's part of what we'd like to go do if, if it makes sense. That's that's one of the phases we talk about um, operating the deal. You know, it's kind of you know sort of biding your time, but again, you're benefiting from I believe the best part of, of owning real estate is just the cash flow. So after we've improved the property, we've raised the rents, we've added other value add strategies. This is the the gravy time, right? We're just sending out distribution checks. We're collecting rent. We're operating the deal. That could be, you know, two years, it could be five years. It kind of depends on the business plan for that specific property, what's happening in that market. But that's kind of the longest phase where you just want to operate the deal and then you look to exit, um, you know, when it makes sense and, you, and you've kind of executed your plan uh, and you can meet the returns that, that you want for your investors, then you go market the property and sell it. Going back to the refi phase, why don't you plan for that in your business model? What are, some of the, what are some of the reasons why maybe a passive investor would maybe look at it as a red flag or say, oh, you know what, that the, the returns are a little high here. They're planning for a refi in year three. Sure. I think for us, it's pretty simple. You know, we want to under promise and over deliver um, and, you know, want to use that as a tool that, that allows us to do that. Uh, we also, we pride ourselves on being conservative in the underwriting. I think that's one of the big areas where if you've included that in your projections, if rates go up, you know, if you can't go execute a refinance in, in, in a year and a half, in two years, you're not going to meet the returns you've promised to investors, you know, and, and your business plan is now in, in jeopardy. Um, if, if you've proformed that, what sort of debt structure did you put on at the beginning? Have you gone with sort of a bridge loan that's got a floating rate and, you know, is due in two years um, that you're going to go refi out of? If you can't go do that, you know, you've now put pressure on the deal. Um, and it's just one of the reasons that we don't pro forma that. And, and it's not necessarily always bad. And for the last you know, five years, you've been able to execute that pretty easily uh, as cap rates have, have calmed down and the market's been, been very strong, but it's just something that, that we don't do. And I think you, you would you know, ask some questions as a passive investor, if they have pro forma that, you know, how often have they executed? What's the track record? Uh, what's the debt structure going in? That's going to allow them to, to execute a, a refi. Yeah, you can certainly handcuff yourself by by doing that. But as you mentioned, if you have experience and you've done it before and you've got a proven track record, then you know that's not exactly it's not necessarily a red flag. Yeah, it's just something I think you ask some more questions about, and and something we don't do. Okay, so going back to the repositioning, what does your repositioning look like? Is it is it the same across all your portfolios? Same paint, same rehabs on the interiors, same rebranding type of package, or does it differ per property? Uh, it differs per property and it's really market dependent, sub-market dependent. Um, you know, we've got a grouping of deals in San Antonio that are all within sort of two miles of each other. It's kind of one in the middle and then, you know, either direction, a mile, mile and a half, there's another one. So there um, we have similar uh, upgrade levels, you know, similar interiors, but there there are some differences and some nuance so that if color palette wise, you know, appeals to, to one group or another, or, or the amenity packages are different, one's got a playground uh, one of them's more focused on the gym. Um, so we try to create some separation, but across, uh, we, we don't rebrand all the properties. You know, we have an Austin property that we're, we're going to update the signage. Uh, we're not going to change the name of, so we're, we're not, it's not just a, you know, we run the same plan every time it really is depends on 
the deal, the submarket, you know, the vintage, you know, we've got a, a 2002 built deal, needs less exterior work, doesn't, we don't need to replace siding, we're not going to spend the money to paint the siding versus, you know, a mid 80s deal that needs a bunch of exterior work that kind of dictates how far the repositioning is going to go. Perfect. So you're heavily invested in Texas and are you only invested in Texas as far as your multifamilies? Yes. Okay, perfect. Well, I mean, that's been an amazing market over the last five to seven years for sure. What is it about that market that keeps kind of going on the upward trend? I think you got a lot of good sort of macro factors that, that you know, has certainly attracted a lot of outside interest in Texas. It's, it's, there's no state income tax, um, which I think is, is appealing to obviously a lot of, of people. Uh, and companies. So companies are relocating here. You look at the the major metro areas, you know, kind of the Texas triangle of, of Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. You know, Austin's kind of right in the middle of that. Um, that's an area that hosts and houses, you know, the vast majority of the Texas population. It's projected to grow, you know, double by 2040. Um, so there's, there's some very strong population drivers and, and growth drivers. There's tons of jobs moving here. And, and then you know, the weather's nice and there's no state income tax. So I think all of that combined has attracted a lot of growth uh, to the big cities in Texas, which is kind of where our focus is. And I think we've benefited, you know, having grown up in Austin, being born and raised here, you know, we relatively local, certainly know Austin and San Antonio really well. Houston's a two and a half hour drive. So, uh, you know, feel like we've got relationships in place because we're from here that allows us, it's like, We've toyed around with some other markets, spent a lot of time in Atlanta early last year, we've investigated Florida, et cetera, but I feel like you, we live here, we have relationships here, we know this market and, and it's, it's super attractive. So we're fortunate to be from here, but it, it also gives us a bit of a competitive advantage. Certainly. Uh, any side of a slowdown in the Texas markets with it being so hot over the last five to seven years? Not from a, you know, not from a population growth, not from a job growth perspective. I mean, I think the biggest factors, you know, we're looking at, and, and I think most everybody else are obviously interest rates and just sort of the overall macro economy, uh, what's happening kind of globally and, and within the U.S. at large. But, you know, Texas itself, I mean, every time you look up, there's, you know, another job announcement in Dallas, you know, Austin, just the, the Apple uh, announcement was huge, you know, the a billion dollar uh, headquarters are going to put here in Austin. And, and there's just you know, Houston, uh, just across the board, there's, there's jobs and companies, you know, seemingly every day, we send out a monthly newsletter. And it's like every single month, there's a headline about some new company and coming in and, and adding jobs in one of those cities. So it, it doesn't seem like it's, it's slowing much. Yeah, one of the things we talk about is, you know, real estate's local, certainly. So just because one market is, you know, not performing well does not mean that all markets across the board perform well, you really have to look at the micro and the macro of, of each market and understand it. So perfect. Yeah. So since you guys are over a thousand units now, do you have your own in-house property management company or do you still hire out on third party? We have third party manager. Um, so we, you know, one third party manager that manages the portfolio and, and that's been a strategic choice for us um, that I think, you know, we are good at underwriting, finding deals. We're good at asset management. I think property management's a totally different expertise. You know, it's very property managers are critical, right? Your deal is successful or not largely based on your on-site management team, but building out that infrastructure and trying to manage that, um, you know, we found it to be a lot more successful having a third-party manager that, that handles that for us. Do you feel like there's an advantage or a disadvantage to one or the other in-house versus third property? 
Um, you know, I think you could spin it either way, you know, and, and some of it, I think, comes back down to the, the interest, number one, uh, of the, you know, the operator. And do you have the interest in building out that team on site, um, you know, or do you feel like you're better leveraged, better advantaged by having somebody that to come in and, and manage it that's third party? For us, obviously, we, we feel like it's better for the property's performance, it's better for the portfolio to have an expert that's been doing it for 20 years, you know, our, our regional manager in San Antonio has got 30 years in the business, knows everybody in town, you know, and, and, and managing those onsite people. Um, and it allows them to kind of focus on the, the day-to-day property management. And then we're kind of focused on the asset management and how is that performing against the business plan. I think it works well for us to have that separation between kind of day-to-day onsite operations versus, you know, week over week, month over month performance. Perfect. What are some of the things as an operator you do to ensure the property continues to perform at a high level once you reposition it or rebrand it? Um, I think a lot of people talk about their business model and, okay, we're going to we're gonna put X dollars into the interior, X dollars into the exterior, and then we're just going to sit back and let it cash flow. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of people miss the time in between when you are cash flowing. What are some of the things you need to do to, con- to continue to cash flow and to see positive returns? Yeah, manage expenses. You know, I think that that's that's number one. It's the easiest thing to sort of watch and control. And and again, that comes back, I think, to you know, on-site day-to-day property management versus that asset management. I mean, we are uh, we're very hands-on with our with our assets. And you know, I'm on site, you know, no minimum, no less than once a month across every deal we've got. Um, but I think you know, to your point, it's it's super busy through renovations, and you're you're checking in on the progress of things. Once that starts to calm down, you know you're looking at your business plan, you know, we're looking at our, Hey, we, we project that we'd be getting, you know, X amount of rent premium, you know, on a renovated product. Are we getting that, you know, and are there adjustments we need to make to any of the strategies? Hey, we, we underwrote to, you know, 40 new covered parking spaces. Well, you know what, all 40 of those are full. Let's go build some more or let's dial this thing back. Or, you know, I, I think your, your underwriting is, is the, the, the roadmap, but it's also a bit, you know, you're kind of taking a guess, you know, we think we're going to get, X amount more in, in rental premium. We think we're going to add, you know, these number of dog yards, or we're going to get this number of people to buy a washer dryer. Um, I think during that cash flow operations period, you're kind of tweaking those dials, you know, on a monthly basis to say, hey, let's let's you know, to, to dial this up a little bit. Let's dial this piece back, um, you know. And I think that just comes from being actively involved. We do a weekly conference call with our property management team across all our assets, so it's. What happened in the last week? You know, how, where are we at on occupancy? Uh, so we're we're very engaged with what's going on and kind of making decisions. We, yesterday we made a decision: hey, we need to go hire another manager across two assets. We've been sharing a manager, um, and it's it's realizing hey that that's just a lot on one person. Um, and both properties, you know, while paying a little bit less payroll, they benefit more from having a new a, a specific dedicated manager. Um, so, you know, made that call yesterday and now we'll go, we'll go hire a manager and, you know, kind of being engaged at that level to make sure that, that they perform. Great. Thanks for that. All right. Well, Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions. All right, Andrew. Well, in wrapping things up, here are our final four questions. Uh, what is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? You know, for me, it, it's it's not in real, necessarily a tool. It's just you know the phone. It's relationships. You know, everything that we do is, is relationship oriented. Um, so you know, raising money with investors. That's all about you know touching them and, and talking to them and golfing with them. Um, mm-hmm. So it's you know there's certainly tools we use, Mailchimp and CRMs and different things to stay in touch. But I think it's really 
you know, hand-to-hand combat and sort of having a real human connection with people. So, you know, meetings and, and that sort of thing. Okay. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far and what is the main takeaway for our listeners? I mean, for me, I always wish that I just would have gotten started sooner. You know, I, th- I think it's real estate's a business that's get rich slow, you know, from, from an investor standpoint, from an owner standpoint. Um, so the earlier that you get started sort of planting seeds, you know, the, the, the more you know, fruit those will bear down the road. Um, so I always kind of wish I've got started. We, again, we've been fortunate. We haven't had any swings and misses. A lot of that has been, you know, it's been the last 10 years, a, a phenomenal run. Uh, but I think even when there's sort of down cycles, if you have a long enough time horizon for your investments, you know, real estate has, has historically proven it goes up in value. Um, and the deals we're buying, you know, in locations that people want to be in, they're, they're going to be occupied. So it's just a matter of having that flexibility and the time horizon to, you know, I wish I had gotten started earlier, but not putting yourself in a position where you've got to sell it in the next you know, two years that you can weather a storm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Just keep my head down, you know, kind of one of the, one of the uh, quotes on my board is, is, are you making progress? You know, just every single day, one step in front of the next makes make progress on, you know, across the board. Are you making, making new relationships with investors? Are you, you know, have you touched base with those brokers in, 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 the, in the market you're getting into? Have you visited those cities? Just, you know, when you sit down, look day over day, week over week, um, if you're making progress, you know, that, that'll continue to drive me and kind of what we want to do to the next level. Awesome. And lastly, Andrew, where can people find out more about you? Um, you know, online, our, our company's Wildhorn Capital. The, the website is wildhorncap.com. And my email is just andrew at wildhorncap.com. We've also got Facebook and Instagram and those things, but um, you know, happy to, to answer emails and connect with people. Again, I, I love I love talking about it. And that's kind of how we've you know, very focused on building our businesses with relationships and, and you know, talking with people. So email would probably be the best way. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing your story and providing our listeners in detail with exactly what you do. Really enjoyed our interview and appreciate you taking us through your real estate journey so far. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.